for thinking today about why we should uh, trust the Bible. And I thought I would start with uh, some Raymond Briggs. You might know Raymond Briggs. He wrote this. He wrote a load of things. But uh, this is one of his most famous works, The Snowman. Bit, bit early, maybe, talking about Christmas. No? No? All the shops are bringing Halloween and Christmas together. So I figured, well, why not talk about The Snowman today? And uh, this, is the, this is the book that he, he wrote, that he illustrated on, on the snowman. Now, I had never read the, the book until very recently, and I had seen the animated version year after year. It's a Christmas favorite. And I thought, well, you know, I, must, I must buy the actual book. And I was in for something of a surprise because the first few pages, everything is just like it is in the animated version. But at one point in the story, the boy and the snowman, they head out on a motorbike. And yet when I came to the book, I realized there's no motorbike. Oh, it's a car. That's a bit different. Okay. Poetic license, that's all right. But then in the movie, there's a key scene where the snowman and the boy fly off. And then you get that iconic music comes in. I can't sing it. You know, we're walking in the air and they, they go and they fly off to the North Pole and they meet Santa and all his rosy cheeks and all the reindeers and all the snowmen are dancing around the place. This iconic scene. And then he, he comes back to Brighton where he's from. There's no North Pole in the book. No Santa in the book. He just goes for a little fly around Brighton Pier and home again. Well, that's very different. So it's always revealing when you actually take a step back from what is familiar to you, or perhaps you had always known or heard time and again, and you read the thing for yourself. Then you often find, this actually is not what I thought it was. It's quite different. And as we think about this theme of trusting the Bible, whatever your interaction with the scriptures up to this point has been, I want to encourage you to read it for yourself because you will be surprised by the things you thought you knew compared with what it's actually like when you read it. And so I want us to start with thinking about what the Bible itself is actually like. We've touched on this a little bit in the video, but of course it's not just one book not just one single big long book. It's a library made up of 66 books. And they all have their own style and they all have their own flavor. So you'll find books that are poetic. You'll find narratives and stories. You find even architectural blueprints along the way, if that's your thing. Family trees are in there. You get wisdom literature, songs, some looking at future events, some things looking at what's gone, gone past, some things that are meant to be taken very literally, and some things that are highly pictorial and symbolic. And it's written over about 1,500 years, three different continents, 40 or so writers, and they're all very different people. So you have people from fishermen to, to kings, nomads to to soldiers, and they wrote from very different contexts as well. You have people writing from prison, 
You have people writing from prison cells and from thrones, people writing from deserts to, to death row, a vast variety of different contexts and from freedom and captivity. And huge chunks of the New Testament is written by someone who at the peak of his life was trying to get rid of the church and hated the church and wanted the church out of society. And yet he is the person who ends up writing big chunks of what we have as the New Testament. So it's not surprising then to find that when you come to the Bible and you take the time to, to read it for yourself, that it's a fascinating read, but it's hugely diverse. But that doesn't really answer the question of why you should trust it, though. One of the things that's compelling about the Bible is that though we have all of those differences that we have talked about, it's telling one progressive, harmonious story that ties it all together. There's a harmony to the Bible. The Bible is fundamentally all about Jesus Christ across all of its diverse content. Suzanne read from us earlier from the account in the Emmaus Road. And there Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now he talked about how everything ties together and when you read the scriptures and you look at them and you can see that. So for example, in Psalm 22, which was written many, many hundreds of years earlier, the writer there says, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. It sounds very like crucifixion, which didn't occur at that time. And this is many, many hundreds of years later. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You could take that account in the Psalms, and you could place it alongside everything that happens in Jesus, and you see the harmony of how the scriptures tie together, how they are ultimately about Jesus and are pointing to him. And it was actually words from Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's taken from that Psalm, Psalm 22. So you have to ask yourself, is the result of, is the result of that harmony some kind of corruption? Or is it that God has got this theme tune right through the scriptures that's pointing to Christ? How, the, how do these things all work together? And then we should consider the kind of tone that you find when you read the Bible. The writers are very open to say what's on the heart and to speak, on, to speak what's really going on. And they talk about their doubt. They talk about their failure. They talk about unbelief. They, they mention very explicitly the scandal that occurs in their lives and around them. So, we're, for example, we're told plainly that one of the key Bible characters, Moses, he kills another man. And when he, he's called, caused to flee out in the desert, 
And many, many years later, he's approached by God who wants to commission him to go and deliver his people from being ruled in Egypt. And Moses says, well, I don't want to go. I'm not fit for that job. I can't speak properly. I don't, I don't have what it takes. And God keeps bugging him and eventually says, look, just send somebody else, will you? I don't want to go. Very authentic what you find there. And if I were making the whole thing up, I think I would have presented somebody who's such an iconic character like Moses. I'd have inclined to say, Moses said, behold God, I will serve. But he doesn't. He says, I don't want that job. What are you asking me for? Then King David, hero of David and Goliath, which you may have heard of. An example to all in his bravery and in defeating the foe. Except he's not an example when he leers at another man's wife, takes her for himself, gets her pregnant, and then kills her husband. I don't think I would be inclined to have left that in if I were making it up personally. It just doesn't read well. Yet there it is. It's in the scriptures. In fact, all of the key people are absolute moral failures in one way or another. And all of the ordinary people, you know, the grassroots people, they're just as bad. It's just you don't hear as much about them. Everybody except the person of Jesus, which is where that theme tune comes in again. It's all the time pointing you to look for a person who will not have this kind of corruption in their life. That, of course, is Christ. And think about the searing honesty you find in the Bible. The way people openly question God. They plainly question God. They express doubt. They ask the type of questions that we're looking at in this series. So look at Psalm 13, for example, where the writer says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? You see how raw the interaction with God is in, in the Bible. And the prophet Jonah, he refuses to go when he's, where, he, where he's told by God. He says, I'm not going. He gets in a boat in the opposite direction to go precisely away from where he's asked to go. And he is so incensed with God who eventually shoves him back to where he should go that he tells God, I'm so angry about what you're doing. I'm angry enough to die with this. This is not what I signed up for. I don't like what you're doing. And I don't like my part in it. Very honest. The lyrics of life as we know it are there. The Bible is content to be authentic, raw, real. It's God engaging with the mess and the struggle of our everyday and meeting us there. And that's partly what makes it so compelling. It's shocking, beautiful, honest, it sings, it cries, it laughs, it questions, it speaks the experience of our everyday and invites us to speak to God on those terms. And he is all the time approaching us in that to meet us where we're at. Now, speaking of, of books, um, you can see here, I like kids' books. They're not too taxing on my brain. And this one actually has words, unlike um, The Snowman, which doesn't. And this is The Ichabog, written by J.K. Rowling. Have, any, have you read that book? That's a fantastic read. You ought to read it. And 
there's a pompous king in it. And the pompous king sets out on an ill-fated expedition to hunt down this dreaded Ichabog figure, this monster. And he's very cowardly and greedy, and he has many cowardly and greedy companions. And among them is Lord Flapoon, who gets spooked in the fog of this hunt for the Ichabog. And in a moment of panic, he accidentally shoots his gun and kills one of the villagers, a family man, kills him dead. And a conspiracy arises then to cover up what has happened. And so they blame the death of the villager on the Ichabog. Perfect. And the king is said to have hunted down the Ichabog and is presented as a hero. So Flapoon goes along with this and the cowardly king is made hero of the story. And all involved then are sworn to repeat this identical version of the fabricated events that occurred out in the fog. All for Spittleworth's gain. He's the king of money, power and control. Lovely bedtime reading that, isn't it? And it gets a lot worse before it gets better. But maybe you think that that's something of how the Bible works and something of how the, the Gospels work. You know, there's a well-rehearsed, fabricated version of events which cover up what really happened and is there to further the cause of those in positions of power and authority who want to trod down everybody else for their own advantage. People often think that that's what the Gospels are and what the church is like makes villains of the heroes and bolster the power of the religious elite who line their pockets from their own lie. But again, when you come to read the Gospels themselves, you have to ask yourself, why are they all so very obviously not trying to say exactly the same thing as one another? They are all distinct. Of course, they tell of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection but they are nowhere near identical. And actually, you ought to be very suspicious of identical testimonies. Whenever there are a number of identical testimonies with very little variation, that is most likely a lie. Because the best way to maintain the same story when you haven't actually witnessed it is to tell everybody to follow the same script. But if they've all been there, you don't need to tell them to follow a script. They can just tell you what they saw. And that's more what you have in the scriptures. True eyewitness testimonies differ and create a fuller picture rather than doubt and suspicion. Identical versions are hiding something. Now you could argue, all right, but when it comes to the Gospels, well, maybe the writers thought of that. And so they made sure that they would differ from one another. You know, a double bluff. Well, that's a fair question. But if they were conspiring to do that, or if they were colluding, you'll you change this bit, I'll change that bit, so nobody thinks we've made it up. You could argue that, but then, when you read the Gospels, you'd have to question what they chose to keep in, if that was fabricated. Because so much of what's in there is shocking. And you ask yourself, why did they leave that in? When you read the Gospels repeatedly, Jesus rebukes his disciples for being absolutely moronic for being dull for being slow he asks him repeatedly why why do you not understand what i'm saying why am i having to repeat this to you 
And again and again, he tells them in plain language that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be beaten up, and he's going to be killed. And they don't listen. And after one such account, the boys are busy arguing among themselves about who's going to get the best position in this new powerful kingdom that's coming. Almost as if Jesus had said nothing about what was going to happen to him. Not presenting yourself in the best possible light if you're going to make it up. And Jesus at one point likens Peter, who's recognized across the world as being a pillar of the Christian faith. Jesus likens him to Satan at one point and says, get behind me, Satan. You only have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. Strange thing to leave in. If it were not actually what happened. And they all abandon Jesus during his trial. And are depressed when he's executed because despite being told plainly and repeatedly and constantly, they didn't expect ever to see him again after he was sentenced to death. And when we're told about his resurrection, those who are said to witness it are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. And how do the disciples respond when they're told by these women? They say, but these words seem to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Hardly something you'd make up or choose to include, especially when there is no Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus. Why would you weaken that narrative if it's key to the whole? Now, on that front, we're praying for Iran today and there's a revolution there of a kind at the moment and women's rights in particular are high in the agenda and you'll have seen that in the news we with our modern lenses want to see women given proper rights in our societies but because of that we fail to realize the significance when we come and approach the gospels of the first century resurrection appearances Because they're said to be given exclusively, as I gave you some names earlier, to women. Well, so what? We think. But at that time, there was no hashtags trending around women's rights. No hashtags talking about equality. No hashtags talking about equal employment. Very different culture. And at that time, sorry ladies, but a first century Palestine's woman's testimony just was not considered as having weight. Didn't really hold up in court, and without men alongside, it didn't have authority. Yet without the benefit of all of those concerns that we rightly now have, all four Gospels insist every time that it was women who saw the resurrection first, and who spoke to the disciples about it first. And not only that, when they were told Maybe, maybe you can relate to this more. When the women told the men, the men said, oh, I don't believe it. You can't be serious. Why would you come up with a conspiracy like that? Why corrupt the story in a way that actually weakens the key narrative? The cornerstone of the faith, the resurrection of Jesus. Unless, of course, that's what happened. And there's no denying it. And so they didn't feel the need To say, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Maybe we should say, Peter, you saw that. That's going to go down better. They didn't do that. They recorded it as it was. 
And bear in mind too that in the political interests of the Romans and the religious elite, they would have wanted to produce the body of this dead Messiah who was causing a revolution. But they couldn't and they didn't. The disciples themselves had nothing financially to gain. They gained mainly opposition and suffering, martyrdom. And as the Apostle Paul puts it, they gained the reputation of being the scum of the earth for what they said had occurred. Lies and fabricated stories don't tend to have those kinds of consequences. And they always unravel at some point. It happens as you read the Ichabod. The story begins to fall apart. Things don't add up. For long, and the conspiracy begins to crack. Trying to suppress lies never holds. It comes out eventually. You saw that in the famous Watergate scandal back in the in the States in the 70s with Nixon. There was a political advisor to Nixon at the time who ended up in jail for his part in that. He became a Christian later, and he said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Impossible. That was Charles Coulson, who was caught up in that political conspiracy at the time. Later came the faith, and that was his conclusion. But how can we trust what is written? How can we know it's not corrupted? Well, on the integrity of the manuscripts themselves, you can head down the road to the Chester Beatty Library. Here, you can see some of the manuscripts. The sheer number of them is absolutely compelling. You can read Caesar's Gallic War from the first century if the Ichabod is a bit too light for you. There are only 10 copies of that around today. I don't think anybody's doubting Caesar was about the place. For the whole of the New Testament, there's around 14,000 copies. And even those who are not Christians do not deny the compelling nature of the manuscript evidence. There's a distinguished professor of religious studies in North Carolina named Bart. Isn't that great? <laughs> There's a distinguished professor and his name's Bart. Anyway, he says the New Testament are the oldest and the best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus. And he goes on to say that it is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed Christians even to hardcore atheists. So why is it the Gospels meet such resistance when by any other historical test, even if you're not a Christian, they pass with flying colors? What's going on then in the resistance to it? Could it be that we just don't want the Gospels to be true and the story of Jesus to be true, regardless of other historical tests or evidence? Why might that be? So don't just think about your reaction to this topic. Go deeper and ask yourself, why am I reacting this way to this topic? Why is it I don't like the idea of the Bible being true? Why is it I prefer the thought of the Gospels have been corrupted and shouldn't be read or relied upon? Is it convenient to you to think that the Bible is untrustworthy? Because if the Bible is untrustworthy, of course, it asks nothing of you, does it? You don't have to change a thing. 
But if it is trustworthy, that's a different matter entirely. If it is trustworthy, wouldn't it be worth a closer look, even if it causes you to have to rethink or troubles you or creates a little unease? And so I want to close with two quotes from the scriptures themselves. This is Peter writing. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But God spoke, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's 2 Peter chapter 1. And then with some of the words we began with. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So if that is indeed true, then nothing, in fact, could be of greater relevance. And there's a lot more at stake than there is with the snowman and the Ichabog. And so I want to encourage you to read the Bible for yourself and see where it takes you. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, Lord. And we pray that you would impress its truth upon us. Whatever our doubts and unbelief may be, meet us with your scriptures and help us to engage with your truth. In Jesus' name.